Today we learn that change isn't really that hard. We've been lied to. We discuss collaboration mindsets and learn that you don't need a magical X factor to be a great facilitator. My guest is Douglas Ferguson, president of Voltage Control, a change agency. Douglas is an expert when it comes to change, collaboration, and facilitation. He also hosts a podcast called Control the Room. And if you're looking to become a great facilitator, reach out to him because he runs facilitator certification programs. Please welcome Douglas. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Douglas, thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk collaboration. We're going to talk humans and change and, and how they all interact together and, and the imperfections and, and the wondrous nature of them all. Uh, I figured a great place to start is collaboration. What do people typically get wrong when you're talking about collaboration? Well, there's there's a lot to, to unpack there. And um, <laughs> maybe I'll start with something that's really common right now. And it's the number one reason that leaders are asking and um, frankly demanding their workforces come back into the office. And it's because they never truly got collaboration right to begin with. Mm. And then when they moved into the virtual spaces where they were less accustomed to the tools, the less accustomed to the actual experiences, the micro movements, it shined a spotlight on all the inadequacies of their collaboration and the way they worked together. And, um, and all these idiosyncrasies were exposed. And now they blame that on the virtual but really, they were just accustomed to the way things were. So they really need to take a fundamental look at how they relate, how they collaborate versus where they do it. It's, there's deeper, more important things to discover and understand. And a lot of it comes down to understanding each other as humans and making sure we're relating and creating safe environments to do our best work. It's funny, we've been remote from day one, and I always, when people used to ask me about it, I'd, I'd explain that you just need to do everything better. It shines a magnifying glass on the whole thing, and, and you just have to do it better, and if you, you can't hide uh, from those real human interactions that you need to, to build. I always say people process technology, and it's funny to put them all as peers in that phrase. People process technology, I say it all the time, but people in that, in, out of those three things, it's got to be, what, 80% of that equation? I don't know. Can you even put a number on that, how people process technology? Uh, it's hard for me to quantify it because I think it matters so much that I ignore the rest because everyone's so <laughs> focused on process, technology, timelines. You know, that's the, that's the age-old change management process. And if they are thinking about the people, they're thinking about them very two-dimensionally. And we, and so I think it's really healthy just to put a, a major focus on the people because guess what? The people can figure out the technology and the process if we make sure we create a space for them, the people to flourish and we think about their needs and, and setting them up for success. That makes sense. That's funny. Just ignore the others. And, and that's where the good stuff is. You know, I, I'm, um, I'm curious what your thoughts are around systems, because I've seen a lot of really expensive collaboration rooms with a lot of really talented people in them, um, just all sitting at their laptops uh, doing other tasks rather than collaborating. Uh, so how, how do you put in place systems to not just for that initial collaboration, but to have enduring collaboration? 
when you said, how do I feel about systems? I got really excited because I love systems. And now I had to like tame myself down a little bit because you got really specific about like collaboration system or techniques or processes by which we might collaborate better. So maybe small S systems, not big S systems, right? So maybe we could come back to the bigger later. But um, yeah, gosh, um, small S systems for collaboration. Well, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to mindsets. And we, first of all, have to make sure that people are geared to create um, spaces of curiosity and play and experimentation. One fabulous way to do that is to bring in one of our meeting mantras, do the work in the meeting. Interesting. In order to do the work in the meeting, you got to bring an artifact to work on. you got to make a prototype. We're going to do something together. Because how often are we in meetings where we talk about the thing we're going to do? And we talked to talk it to death. And then we had to go find time to do it. Yet we're in meetings all the time. So who has time to go do the work? And then it takes weeks and weeks. And this is where projects like hard, have a hard time building momentum. But if we reserve the time and we open up that Google Doc, we open up that PowerPoint, whatever it is that's going to move this thing forward. I mean, maybe we're in a sauna together, like putting this project plan together. Whatever the prototype is, that will be the first steps in formalizing this work we're doing together or creating the first version of a thing. Let's come together, work on it. And then when, when it's like this crappy, like 0.1 version of whatever it is at the end of the meeting, at least we've got some progress and it's really clear where the gaps are and who can go fill those gaps between now and the next time we gather. Oh man, you're speaking right to my soul on that one. Just a few weeks ago, we were in these meetings and I just got so frustrated. I said, let's just build it. Can we please just build this thing and, and be done with it? And it was much, much easier. You were so spot on with that one. Now, I saw that glimmer in your eye when you were talking about systems with a capital S. Let's get into that. And, and I'm, I'm big on common language. So what does that even mean to you, systems with a capital S? When we're talking about complex environments, so... Specifically, complex adaptive systems is what I think about. And these are spaces and worlds where things are very interconnected. And so if we look at complexity theory, it tells us that there's a domain where things are very obvious. You know, there's like a checklist by the door. And if I go through that checklist, things will work in an expected way. And then there's like complicated domains and this is where we have to have an expert come in and like make a checklist because the expert knows how, this, how, how everything works. And then in the complex domain, that's when uh, things are evolving and changing rapidly and there's emergent qualities. And so even the expert doesn't always know. And we have to sense and probe to understand. So if you think about the complex domain that we often find ourselves in where things are emerging and shifting daily or hourly, then we think about this notion of systems where things are interconnected. This, um, these constituent parts come together to form a bigger thing like a organism. And every component has some maybe inputs and outputs and abilities and shifting one thing about one of the components can have ripple effects throughout the whole system. So the classic example of a system is the thermostat. Right, You've got your house, you've got the thermostat on the wall, thermostat's connected to the heater. If it's cold outside, the heater's going to have to work harder to maintain the temperature that the thermostat is set at. If someone opens the window and there's a draft blowing right past the thermostat, it might be hot 
in another room, but it cool by the thermostat. So the, so the heater turns on, you know, so there's like all the, you know, there's bad insulation, you know, there's all these things that might impact the, uh, a, a system, uh, around a heater and a thermometer, but, uh, or a thermostat. Now that's a fairly simple system when we think about it, but it still has emergent qualities, right? We don't know what the weather's going to be tomorrow. We don't know if an animal might dig through the insulation, these kinds of things. And so when you, when you get into more layered and more complex systems, like the things we deal with at work, when humans and emotions are starting to get into the equation, then you can start to ponder and think about how, you know, examining the world around us and techniques and approaches could benefit from taking the systemic view, right? And thinking about these connections and how um, changing one thing might impact another. That makes a lot of sense. And it's funny when you talk about the heating system, I was immediately thinking back to not just the stuff in my home, but I was envisioning the different silos that are at that that heating manufacturer company, right? Because I, I know mm. I have one, it's kind of modern where... Um, you know, at, at the core is just the old school boiler, but now I've got all these touch screens all over the house and there's software on and the software is kind of bad. And, and I can Im- imagine at that, that company, I bet the people that are building the iron boilers are not collaborating that much with the people writing the software. Right. And it, um, it kind of reminds me of, um, of Conway's law, right. Which is, is, you know, whatever you design will be a representation of the, the communication frameworks internally. You can't really hide that fact. So it's, I, you know, I'm curious then, Tips and tricks or, you know, what works for you for breaking down those silos? Because collaboration within one silo is another. It was one thing. But, man, you know, we work with organizations where you're, you're not just silos within them, but then you're trying to collaborate across two global organizations and all of those silos. And it, it's, it seems like a mountain that's too high to climb for some people. For one thing, I want to come back to Conway's Law because Conway's Law is a great model to think about when you're exploring better organizational design. Mm. So rather than looking at Conway's law as a way to diagnose or explain the problems around us, you can use it as a way to think about what's the best design. Because Mm. as we know, the the systems that we build are going to be directly um, impacted by the organizational structure by which we are, um, or we were organized. And so if we, Think about the systems that we want to build and how we want those to be organized. Well, let's organize in those ways. So if we want a microservices architecture, how might we, our reporting and our org chart resemble microservices, for instance? Mm-hmm. And that could, that could be cross-cutting across the organization, whether that's um, not just development, but it could find its way into marketing and sales and everything else. But... That wasn't your question, right? Because not everyone has the luxury of redesigning their companies, right? <laughs> and, right? <clears throat> and so I think it, uh, um, there's two things. It really comes down to communication, right? I was going to say it's two things, but when I thought about it and I was like, well, uh, it's, uh, it's really all communication, right? And how do, we, how do we make sure that people are aware of what's happening in one silo versus another? And... And so there's a number of ways we can accomplish, you know, better communication. And I mentioned the do the work in the meeting. And typically, if we're doing the work in the meeting, we're generating prototypes. Mm. Right? Because we're making an early version of thing. So our, our vision, and there's a reason we use the word vision. And it's funny to me how 
people will craft visions that are purely textual or verbal. Visions should be visual by the nature <laughs> of the word, right? <laughs> it's so funny that we have to explain that, but it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, I mean, everyone falls in the trap. I did for many, many years. And then once I started realizing, wait a second, why are people doing this? Like, it's so much more powerful can, when we can put it, create a visual specification. I think that was when I first started realizing these things was, you know, moving from technical requirements documents to like a UX designer designing a visual specification where I saw what it was supposed to do and it was annotated with various corner cases and various, you know, um, warning messages and, um, and different things that we needed to, to account for. And it was so much easier to develop that software. And I had so much less questions based on that versus like a very lengthy requirements document. So then, you know, that was my first realization of, of, of this power, but it's not just limited to making software. You know, it's anything we're doing. If we can show our future in a way that we, others can see it and, and understand it deeply, intrinsically, and then sometimes react to it very negatively. And that's, that's totally fine. Like, in fact, I would love for someone to tell me on day one that they hate my idea versus on day 365. As long as they're all aligned to what it is, right? And that's what those visual things help you do. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate common language, right? And that creates clarity and clarity creates that comfort for, for everyone. I just had the funniest story. I'll, I'll use vague consulting terms so to protect the innocent, but... Um, you have a ton of people in a room, 20, 30 people. They're talking about building a sprocket, right? And it becomes very quickly apparent that part, some of these people, when they're talking about a sprocket, it's really just a proof of concept sprocket. Whereas mm -hmm. some of the other people, that means this is ready for prime time, out to production sprocket. And you saw the people, the POC people were getting frustrated that the other people were overcomplicating this, right? Because in their head, it's just it's just a proof of concept. Whereas the other people uh, that thought this was going to be ready for prime time, they are getting frustrated because they think that everyone's just oversimplifying everything because they, you know they're not thinking about it as being a ready for prime time thing. So we we literally just wrote down the words, you know. Here's what sprocket proof of concept means. Here's what sprocket production means. Here's what, and that, you know, those simple, just five versions of the word with an explanation, all of a sudden there's a sigh of relief and all of a sudden everyone's aligned and, and there's more comfort there. Uh, and that's that human aspect, right? And so I, I'm curious to hear some of your stories from the trenches on, because um, people show up with baggage, right? They show up with their own mm -hmm. fears and their biases. So how do you... How do you handle the human in the room to really make them comfortable to get them to a point they can collaborate? I'll, you know, a lot of stuff just came to mind then. And I want to come back to your point about the, the writing, the definitions down, because yeah, such a powerful facilitation tool is just getting clear on language. And, you know, that's one of the things that we talk about when training facilitators that is a fundamental foundational facilitation skill, which is linking and connecting and delineating, right? Like we have to help people make sure that they're talking about the same thing. If a developer says it should not be magical and a marketer says it should be magical, are they disagreeing? Maybe, 
our job as facilitators is to help disambiguate and to your point, writing definitions up or even having people talk about the attributes by which they mean it should not be magical or it should be magical. And then people can have epiphanies and get to a deeper level of relating and understanding each other. And then also, you know, that can be done visually, it can be done with words, but we have to, we have to make sure we get, get to those moments of clarity on the team. And speaking of prototypes and kind of coming to your, to back to your question around stories, I can remember um, specifically at a time when we were working with Fidelity doing some design sprints and, and the prototype literally provided a mechanism for communication for the leadership team to uh, truly understand what the project was about because up until that point, you know, they had, they've been talking very high level strategy. They've been talking about, you know, market opportunities and potential moves that they could make that would unlock value for them. I was literally in a meeting with some senior leaders and the prototype was getting shared around for the first time. We did a, a, a series of design sprints that were kind of exploring this hub and spoke kind of um, large system. And... Um, and iterating on it until they had enough that they could hand off to the actual um, squads that were going to really design the mechanicals and build this stuff. So we were, it was kind of the art of the possible, but getting really clarity on, on, on the approach. And I remember in that meeting, they were sharing this prototype around, and I heard someone say, oh, is that what you've been talking about all this time? <laughs> And oh. so it was amazing and provided so much clarity for them. And they, and they, with some minor tweaks, they had a ton of alignment. And, you know, it was very clear that they didn't have that before. And, but they were still, luckily for them, they were still managing to move forward. I mean, how many times have you been in a situation where people have been in a similar headspaces, but they can't move forward because they're just disagreeing? They can't seem to to get to a point where they can um, decide or come to some consensus on a path forward. And, you know, that's really pathological when you're in that situation, yet you're actually probably not disagreeing at all. You just don't understand each other. So it's great that that's one of your key tools for facilitators. I find that if you don't give people permission to do that or show them how to do it, they think it's silly, you know, to just write a word down and say what it means. It almost because... In theory, we all speak the same language, but it's it's so much more nuanced than that. I mean, to go back to your point around vague consulting language, just to avoid NDA issues, we were working with a uh, with an athletic retailer, and there was a word that um, is a, is associated with the brand, and they owned that word, and they were going to use this word on a, on a on a new kind of product. They were going to go into a new category, and it was so fascinating to watch people's minds melt as people were talking about how this word could show up in different products in different ways. And, you know, after about 45 minutes, I, I stepped up and I was like, I, I'm going to hit the pause button for a second because I think we need to define X. And everyone kind of looked at me puzzled because it's such a strong word for them and their brand that the idea of defining it sounded just like nonsensical. Mm. And then I was like, no, no, hear me out. I just want to hear. So I had everyone write it down on the piece of paper. And then after they wrote it down, I said, okay, now what, is, what does X mean for this product? 
And then I had everyone write that down. And then we had a little bit of a discussion. I was writing little bullet points down based on what people were saying. And it was just like people's minds were exploding in the room because they realized how much divergence they had in their understanding and thinking about just that one word that was so core to their brand. <laughs> That's reason 5,032 for asking stupid questions in meetings, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you ask what an acronym is and you realize that not a single person in the room knows what the yes. heck it stands for. <laughs> I mean, how many times do you see people just like reading out? You ask like why this is project important or what is the purpose of this work? And they just read off the, the mission statement for some project. And everyone's regurgitating the same thing because it's like what everyone's saying but no one's really connected down to the real, well, what's, what's the real reason we're doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's pivot a little into change. Um, you know, people always say that change is hard. So maybe let's start there. Like, do you agree with that? It can be. But I think often when people say change is hard, they're using it as an excuse it's like it's such an easy thing to say. It's like, oh, well, it's this hard, you know. Mm. And I think there are techniques and things that we can do to make it more approachable. But it does take work. Also, I think that there's habits and mindsets that we can adopt to make change more natural mm. at, the, at the individual level. Change is actually very, very easy at the individual and local level. For instance, if I want to sleep on the other side of the bed, that's really easy. Now, if I'm sleeping in a bed with my wife and I want to start sleeping on the other side of bed, now there's a negotiation that has to Good happen. Good luck, buddy. Good luck. Right. <clears throat> and so that gets more and more difficult the more people that are involved, right? Mm. And so that's where when people say change is hard, they're usually thinking about these big changes with lots of people and lots of impacts and they're, they're systemic qualities, right? There's interconnectedness that we have to think about and consider or they're not considering it, and that's why it's really, really hard, because they're in this hamster wheel just trying to make change and getting nowhere because they're not being thoughtful about all the interconnectedness and the systemic nature. Mm. And so the thing I'll say is you know, adopting the mindset, being curious, creating prototypes, and just being okay with the emergent nature of things, you're going to have to keep changing your approach in order to successfully change because you can't just plot your course and expect to get there. Like the waves are going to change, move, like uh, flow in a different direction at different times. And uh, the other thing I'll say that can really combat this whole fear of like resistance to change or change is hard is um, shrinking the change. And this is actually, it sounds simple, but it's rooted in complexity theory when we're in a complex adaptive system, we have to take small risky bets. We can't just go do a big change. It's not about like saying, oh, I'm going to go build a skyscraper. It's like, oh, no, maybe we should build, you know, what's the small, simple thing we can do that then we can take and build upon it and make sure we're kind of understanding um, how things are shifting and, and what we're capable of and what, you know, what lessons do we need to learn in order to move to the, the, the second and third and fourth steps. Mm. Do you find that um, people naturally have different speeds at which they can accept change? Like, is there kind of groupings, you know, people that can readily change quickly versus not? And then how do you, how do you manage that? Yes, there are certainly folks that are 
you know, uh, change junkies, so to speak. You know, they're they're always uh, chasing the, sh- the the shiny new object. And there are certainly the archetype where, you know, they're like, okay, don't rock the boat, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I like things the way they were. Um, and I, so just understanding that there's a spectrum. And, I mean, that kind of comes back to the systemic nature of, of things that I was talking about where things are interconnected. You've got people that are, um, are dynamic. Someone might be really excited about change today and very apprehensive about change tomorrow. Yeah. For instance, um, someone might be really, let's take a really um, simple example everyone can relate to. Um, you might be really excited about finding a new job until you find out that you're expecting a child. And then you're like, oh, wait, maybe is now is not the time to go get a new job. Um, and so your risk tolerance and or your willingness to try certain things might change based on what happens tomorrow. And that's what I was talking about, the emergent nature of the stuff. We have to be willing to acknowledge what's happening in front of us personally as we're kind of navigating and planning. And also, what about the people that we're working with? You know, there might be folks that were harshly against us just the other day that are now on our side because of some new, some new thing that's unfolded. There might be people that are like totally for it and they're starting to shift and change. And we had to just be mindful of that stuff and just, it's a spectrum and people are going to move across that spectrum. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what I found useful is um, I stole a book from Gartner. They have their pace layer framework, which mm-hmm. says that, Systems, systems record, uh, systems of uh, innovation and differentiation. And um, I try to, to, you know, basically things can operate at three speeds. So if, if we've got a large change, I try to group people into those. And I, and I find that they really have a comfort once you tell them that that's their home. You know, the, the people that want to move mm. slowly. And you're know, like, hey, we're going to be doing a lot of change, but you're going to be in this work stream it's going to change a little bit slower than the others. And they're like, ah, oh, they breathe deeper. They just feel that they're going to be much more comfortable there. Um, and then you take the, the, you know, the change junkies and you're like, you're going to be in our innovation tier. You're going to have a lot of fun there. And that way they're not, they're not going to die out of boredom. And conversely, the other person is not going to freak out because they're just see risk and stress all over the place. Um, yeah. But, the, you know, that reminds me of, you know, it's, it's always important to identify the change advocates you know, mm. and celebrate them and, and give them um, a role to play in helping bring others along and helping, you know, take on responsibilities to your point where, you know, there might, might be some people that don't need to be as involved or as um, uh, aware of some of the intricacies of the day-to-day, right? Um, and another thing is making sure that those groups get refreshed and celebrated because often they can be unsung heroes and you can burn them out. Because, and that's yeah. what I meant by the spectrum. Even though you might think of them as being in that bucket, you know, after six months of doing all the all this side work in addition to like everything else they, were, they have to do for their, their day job, um, they can get burnt out. And so, um, you know, giving them raises, giving them like props and a recognition and then also rotating new, new folks in so that they have a, a, a chance to tap out and, uh, you get fresh ideas and you keep people from, you know, just, uh, getting, uh, getting worn out and disenfranchised. That makes a lot of sense. I know I've certainly been guilty of, 
I, I picture someone a certain way in my brain and, um, and uh, I might interact with them based off of an old picture in my head of maybe three years ago. And I don't realize that now maybe their kids all graduated college and they have a very different you know, risk profile and it's a whole different person. Uh, and, and just I, so I always try. Now I've learned to kind of just refresh my mental picture about people just to, to understand where they're at. Otherwise, it can get it can get stale. And then you you don't serve those people very well. Um, keeping an old picture in, in your head. You know, I think that goes for anything. You know, it makes me think about the curse of knowledge where, you know, once we know something, it's hard to unknow it. And mm-hmm. and the knowing of the thing can blind us to considering possibilities that would be, um, it, it, that would re- refute that thing, right? <laughs> and so, and I'll, I'll, so there's that. Plus, it's, it's it makes it even difficult to help folks that are that are seeing it for the first time to see it from their perspective. It's like super important for leaders to be aware of that and always just ponder, what am I, what am I not noticing because of what I know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because otherwise I would I would still hate Brussels sprouts, right? If I just had that <laughs> picture. <laughs> there you go. Yes, I love it. Um, so I, I know you've been um, so you're good, so good at, at, at collaboration and change of people. You've started to roll out um, facilitator certification. What I'm curious about is um, what's it like to watch someone kind of go from not knowing how mm. to facilitate or being okay to then being great? Because I feel like some people feel that. Oh, you, you need to kind of have a, an it factor, right? You need to have this charisma to own, quote unquote, own the room. And um, you must get to see some really great uh, evolutions of people. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, the way I think about it is, have you ever seen folks that like, are, they're not really geologists. I'm sure they call, have a name for themselves, but they're like, they love to go hunt for stones and gem, gemstones and, mm-hmm. and, and geodes and things, you know, and they'll go out and they'll kind of crack the rocks open and they'll take them and they'll maybe, um, sometimes they might just crack it open and you have this raw exterior and this, there's this beautiful, like, inner gorgeousness, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then sometimes they'll put them into, like, um, one of those um, sand wheels and they'll polish it up, right? And then out comes this, you know, beautiful thing. That's what came to mind when you were asking that question. And because it's not like we're necessarily imparting something that wasn't there. And there's not, and and these folks didn't necessarily have some crazy X factor, but it's, we're just kind of finding their innate ability to be human and connect with humans. And we're helping draw that out of them with some principles and language and tools and then we reinforce that by the, the program is all based on building a portfolio because practice is key. We always say practice makes practice. Mm-hmm. And we do that through having them build their portfolio and get practice by applying it and building confidence because it's that confidence that we're exposing much like you know, the rock hunter breaking open and exposing the awesomeness. Confidence is what allows the awesomeness to come out. Because if folks are lacking confidence, whether that's a fear and failure or that they don't have the right tools, the right support, um, 
they, there's an exterior shell around them that doesn't allow that beauty to shine. Because anyone can go read about some of these principles, but it's really the experience of like practicing and learning and building that confidence and getting feedback from peers in the cohort around the things that they gone out and done and put in their portfolio and how they might try it different next time, what they're really proud of and just celebrate those moments to really, really sharpen that confidence that allows them to go out and, and to use those words, own the room. Well, I love at the root of that is, is just human connections and confidence, right? That's just, that sounds like a nice warm blanket you can, you can curl up with. <laughs> so Douglas, thanks so much for being here. I always like to finish on uh, one fun question. What's the best advice that you've received over the course of your life, be it work or personal? It's interesting because the best advice, you know, it's like, that's heavy. That's like, oh man, the I really one that comes to mind. The first yeah, yeah. Thing. yeah. No, it's like, um, you know, I, I, from a, I'm trying to remember who to attribute this to. And so I'll just, I'll just give the generic advice, but, um, Early on in my career, I was, someone explained to me the power of active listening. Mm -hmm. And it was super insightful for me because, you know, I, uh, at that point, you know, I didn't have a ton of experience in the workplace and being in meetings and, you know, it's, it, it always felt like, you know, what do I have to say or what do I have to contribute and mm. how do I, and how do I find a moment to do that? And, and I remember, um, a mentor telling me this and there's a couple of people that I'm trying to, I'm not going to say a name because I'm, uh, there's a 50% chance I get it wrong, but, um, <laughs> They, 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 they gave me this coach. They coached me on this and it was not even something that they had noticed about me, but it just struck me really, really, really profoundly. Cause I was still young enough to where like, I wasn't even, I didn't really have much opportunity to say much in meetings. Right. Like I was still mm-hmm. just attending and stuff, but I was already in that mode of like noticing that like whoever spoke wielded the power. <laughs> right. And so I was already kind of being conditioned to like, ooh, I should figure out what I could say, right? Yeah. And so I was already in my head of just like, oh, how do you navigate this system and um, and and be the be the cool guy that has like the the the, the attention and you just say something and everyone looks. And so when, so then when this notion of active listening was explained to me, uh, it just totally it was like bombshell because it was like whoa, I've been thinking about this all wrong. And it was just super timely for me because I was just getting my career started and just trying to understand how to navigate myself in meetings and stuff. Super sage advice, always be listening. It's a huge, powerful, how's that one not taught in schools at a young age, you know? It's so important. That is a big mystery. Well, Douglas, thank you so much. I I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. 
Until next time.